Uh, Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 2. Romans, chapter 12, verses, well, verse 2, just verse 2. We'll read along together. Romans, chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So true to form, Cross and Crown Church, there are no taboo subjects that we won't touch, and there are no sacred cows. There are areas which we regard as irrelevant to the kingdom of God, and there are no domains that we will cede to the world, and there are no subjects to which we cannot apply biblical principles. We are not interested in maintaining dominion over a Christian ghetto. Uh, Whether it's economics, socialism, racism, government schools, art, law, business, politics, and everything else, it's all open for discussion. It's freeing, isn't it? Well, today is no different. We're going to be doing a mini introductory into the field of psychology. And I say mini introductory because this is truly a massive topic uh, to which I'll only scratch the surface. But with God's help, we can continue to approach the subject through the lens of clear biblical principles. It would not be an exaggeration to say that the state of mental health in the United States is abysmal and it's getting worse. According to figures from the National Alliance on Mental Illness, 60 million Americans experience a mental illness. 42 million American adults live with anxiety disorders. 6 million Americans have bipolar disorder. 2 million have schizophrenia. 16 million live with major depression. Uh, Depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide and is a major contributor to the global burden of disease. In America, serious mental illness costed almost $200 billion in lost earnings last year. Since 2006... Teen suicide has been soaring up over 70%. That's over 10 years from 2006 to 2016. And uh, in um, in, in minority, uh, with minority, it's even higher, 77%. And you could go on and on with the, uh, the issue of the emerging opioid crisis, the increasing prevalence of drug addiction, the breakdown of the family with the rising amount of single-parent homes. Clearly, uh, there is uh, some problems going on. These are all serious uh, diagnosed cases. Um, these figures don't really say a lot about uh, the mental anguish and the difficulty that goes on an everyday basis um, for folks who are just under the sway of humanistic psychology and, and that whole, uh, and, and all of that thinking. So uh, it is a little bit harder to qualify, but the amount of money being spent on uh, self-help gurus like Tony Robbins and many others is actually astronomical. Uh, of course, you all also have your Oprahs and your Dr. Phil's and your Deepak Chopra's. Uh, more recently, especially from young men, we have seen the emergence of an allegiance to a clinical psychologist by the name of Jordan Peterson uh, with his best-selling book, 12 Rules for Living. Uh, then at the same time, you have universities which are completely filled with students who are majoring or minoring uh, in psychology, or at the very least, they have a liberal arts degree and they take Psychology 101. So the thought of modern psychologists like Freud and Jung and Skinner, whose ideas have become very prevalent over the past 75 years, they've never been so widespread as they are now. And yet, the epidemic of mental illness continues. 
Even more sadly, the influence of modern psychology has not been limited to the world, but has also crept into the thinking of those in the church, frequently uh, indirectly through state-run education, but also even through so-called Christian counseling, which frequently leans on pagan humanistic thought as well. About that influx, this influx of humanistic psychology into the church, R.J. Rushduni states the following in his book, Revolt Against Maturity. Quote, humanistic psychology gives us a doctrine of man radically at odds with scripture. It has become routine for clergymen to look to humanistic psychologies for guidance in pastoral counseling, and books applying such psychologies to pastoral problems have had a ready market and a widespread influence. The result has been a steady infiltration of humanism into Christian circles and the steady erosion of the biblical doctrines of man and of salvation. We live in a world where everyone is trying to reconstruct the human mind apart from the person who created the mind, Christians included. And we wonder why there is so much chaos out there in the world and in the church. Well, today, Cross and Crown Church, we will be exploring what is an indispensable component of the collective success of our long-term intergenerational vision. You know, as Reconstructionists, we want to, of course, reconstruct culture and law and politics and business and, and everything else along a scriptural basis. But if we ourselves are not transformed in our own minds, it, how can we uh, expect to have long-term change in those areas? So for many of us, disciplining our own minds and our own thinking and gaining mastery of our own minds is, is difficult. Uh, and though we may not be fully aware of it, we still believe many false things in our minds and have accepted much of the lies of pagan humanism uh, along those lines, though we may not be aware of it. Added to this, because of the fall and the effect of the fall that has had a, um, the effect that the fall has had on everything, including our minds, many of us are more prone to various mental illnesses, which are real things and can't just be explained away by demon possession and so forth, not to deny the reality of spiritual warfare. The health of the mind cannot be divorced from a holistic approach, which includes looking at physical aspects of diet and hormonal components and so forth, the more, what we put into our bodies and what we don't put into our bodies. The more we learn about the body and its functions, the more these physical aspects can and should be addressed. Uh, but this aspect of the connection between the health of the body and mental health is certainly an aspect of the rolling back of the curse and man's efforts to take dominion over the mind. But for the purposes of today, we'll be focusing on the prevailing effects of modern psychology on society today. So whether we're talking about, you know, as we mentioned, dietary and medicinal aspects of mental health or psychiatric philosophy, we do know for certainty, according to Colossians 1, 2, uh, 20 through 22, that this reclaiming of the human mind for Christ is part of the reason that Christ initiated his kingdom on earth, to reconcile all things to himself, right, including the mind. The passage reads, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. So as a community and taking part of Christ reconciling all things to himself through the church, we want to be able to equip each other to identify lies as we come across them, both to be able to pursue the renewal of our own minds and to disciple those in our own family, but also to be able to speak prophetically into a culture which is snared and afflicted by the lies of Satan. 
for the majority of us, we may not have a diagnosed mental illness, uh, but at various times in our lives and in different seasons, and to varying degrees, many of us struggle with gaining mastery over our own minds, including in this congregation with Lucas dropping his phone there. <laughs> we must all struggle with maintaining uh, a renewed mind as Christians, and myself included in that. And this can in- include lots of different kinds of struggles. So uh, with frequent anxiety, depression, double-mindedness, fear, faithlessness, bouts of flagrant sin tied to an autonomous or selfish mindset, uh, various kinds of mental paralysis that lead to inaction, lack of motivation, sloth, many other manifestations. Sometimes uh, gaining victory over these struggles can be a long, painstaking process, and it may take many years in some cases. Sometimes it may feel like we're stuck or that we're simply resigned uh, to a mind that is not being renewed. So how do we combat this? Well, shortly before he died, R.C. Sproul once said that our biggest problem in the church uh, these days is that we don't know who we are and we don't know who God is. And I think Sproul really got it right there. And as it relates to the mind, I want to take what Sproul said a little further. Maybe we sort of know who we are and who God is on a theological or an intellectual basis. But in Scripture, specifically in 1 Corinthians 8, there's described sort of a knowledge that goes beyond merely head knowledge and affects us at the heart level to bring about strong convictions which allow us to apply truth in our daily lives. So there's a knowledge that doesn't extend to the heart, a knowledge that sort of just stays up there in the head, and that kind of knowledge, Scripture says, puffs up. And so we need to be aware of that. So again, we we may know on a theological level who we are, but we may forget easily. Uh, We may know who God is on an intellectual level, but again, when it comes to what this means for our lives, um, we can practically sometimes live like atheists, and our thinking is afflicted as a result. And most importantly, we may know what Christ has done for us uh, historically on one level, but has that truth really permeated our minds, our being a new creation? Part of the reason for our forgetfulness may indeed be a product of our fallen nature, but also it points to our own ambivalence and lack of vigilance in our battle against the flesh, against the devil, and against the world. All of these three enemies combine to wage war against us. So again, if we want to reconstruct society and build businesses and culture and a biblical trustee families and lay the seeds for building a rival social order to the humanist one that now holds sway, and we do want to do all those things, if we want to teach all the nations to obey Christ, um, if, and if we, if we know that in order to do this, we must first govern our own minds and our own thinking by the word of God, how do we begin to do this? Let's stop there and pray and ask for God's help and for the Spirit's guiding. Father, we come before you this afternoon as your church in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We seek to honor you in our nation, as a church, in our families, but first of all, from our own minds, and how we think and how we love you with all of our minds. Please teach us from your word this afternoon and help us to take your truth and by your spirit cause us to receive it and to obey it. Help our minds not to revolt against the maturity that you have called us to, that our minds might be continually renewed for the glory of your name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read just quickly here our verse again from Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what we see here in this verse is that the command is very clear. It's not a mere suggestion. We are commanded not to be conformed to the ways of the world. 
but to be transformed ourselves by the renewal of our minds. And then the second half of the verse, the connection is made that using these renewed minds, we can then test everything and properly judge between good and evil. This is the kind of maturity that is also spoken of as a test of maturity in Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. And that's what uh, Jason went through uh, not long ago uh, as he talked uh, during that uh, portion of the sermon series through Hebrews. Having our minds renewed leads to our maturity where we can ably discern between good and evil in all the unique scenarios that God brings our way. And if you follow the progression of the entire book of Romans leading up to chapter 12, this mind renewal spoken of um, in Romans 12 follows a long chain of teaching starting in Romans 1, where Paul goes to these great lengths to communicate the devastating effects of sin upon the mind that does not acknowledge God or give thanks to God, but it's ex- instead exchanges the truth of God for a lie. And what's the result? The, the futile thinking that comes as a result is what comes as a result. God then gives this person up to what is called a debased mind. What is a debased mind? It's a mind that is unable to judge between right and wrong consistently. Maybe they'll get it some, some of the time, and you see that out there in the culture, but it's uh, certainly a conflicting process where their thoughts are conflicting. It's a futile way of thinking, and it's a, a evidence of a debased mind. If this sounds familiar, it should, because we live in a terribly confused society, a society that tries to pass off the foolish notion that there is a magical birth canal that magically transforms a clump of cells that, um, into a human, a society that doesn't know what a man or a woman is, a society that doesn't know what marriage is, a society that teaches that there is no objective right or wrong, no objective truth, no heaven above, no hell below. Yet there is somehow this magical social contract that we all agree on and subscribe to and militantly defend, though no one has ever seen the contract or signed it. Uh, one minute the world can cor- correctly identify the evilness of you know, rape or murder, but then can militantly defend the murder of the unborn. And uh, these same people think we live in a civilized, modern society. So talk about conflicting thoughts and a debased mind. Romans 1 and 2 describes the condition of the unregenerate man in perfect detail, as uh, Lucas read for us earlier. In the chapters that follow uh, Romans 1 and 2, Paul then describes the righteousness that is by faith in Christ, culminating in chapters 7 and 8, where, if you're familiar with, you know, Christ's in, in verse 8, it gets to the point where there is therefore now no condemnation. And it talks about the results of that, where the mind is transformed from a debased mind and is set free. Set free to do what? To obey the law of God, rather than continually being a slave to the flesh. So Romans 8, verse 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For what? It does not submit to God's law. So we see that the evidence of a mind that is set upon the Spirit of God is a mind that submits to God's law. And having been set free from the bondage of sin through the victory of Christ, we are now free to set our minds upon the Spirit, which always causes us to love, cherish, and obey God's law. There's no false dichotomy between embracing the Spirit and embracing God's law. They work together in perfect harmony. So in our efforts to reconstruct our minds on the Word of God, as with any other effort of reconstruction, the first steps will require that we get the wrecking ball out to do some uh, destruction of the lies that that exist today. In this case, it's the lies of, of humanist psychology that's been pushed on us. 
It will also require that we do a serious inventory and self-assessment of our own thought patterns and match them up to the principles that we see laid out in Scripture, and then in faith we need to repent, and then we need to teach others to go and do likewise. So with that said, let's first begin with some deconstruction of what passes for psychology in our modern world, and then we'll circle back and be, uh, begin to rebuild how we think about the renewed mind, which is, which is set on the spirit and is in accordance with the law of God. According to R.J. Rushduni, in again, his excellent work, uh, Revolt Against Maturity, highly, highly recommend, uh, from which, again, most of the sermon is, is inspired. Psychology, Rushduni says, is literally the word or doctrine of the soul of mind or of man. Say that again. Psychology is literally the word or doctrine of the soul or mind of man. Rushduni, he rightly identifies psychology as a derivative study, which is subordinate study of theology. Theology, of course, being the study of the doctrine of God. The important, the important point here being we can't under, uh, understand our own minds by setting aside the word of our creator. Any attempts to do so will lead to catastrophe and an inability to understand the human mind. There are many myths about the nature of man that plague modern psychology, but Rush Juni boils them down to two main myths. The first one I nicknamed the Play-Doh myth, right? Play-Doh, you make things with it. It's the myth that says that man has no fixed or constant nature. And that's kind of technical sounding, but in other words, it's sort of like that you're, uh, you were not designed by a creator for a specific purpose and destiny, that your mind was not created for a specific purpose or destiny, and that you were not designed with intentionality as a creature that has certain needs in order to, to fulfill your purpose uh, on earth. This lie creates all sorts of problems because it isn't the way that our minds were designed. So how were our minds designed? Well, think of it this way. Although God created each human uniquely and each mind uniquely, the human mind or the human psyche is like a Xerox machine. It has a purpose. If you use it a certain way, it will be successful for that for which it was designed. Sure, there are all sorts of different kinds of Xerox machines uh, with all sorts of different kinds of capabilities and strengths and weaknesses, but if you try to use a a Xerox machine as a tennis racket, it's not going to go well. It's going to get uh, really frustrating really quick. God has created the mind of mankind for a specific purpose again, and God has equipped uh, man with a mind to aid him in that purpose. But in man's rebellion and in man's setting aside the word of God in his analysis of the mind, we get the teaching of secular psychology, which is that you allegedly evolved a certain way based on unguided processes that just arbitrarily happened in nature over hundreds of millions of years. So consequently, because a man allegedly has no constant or fixed nature, no fixed purpose or design, man can then be remolded in any fashion which is desirable to man uh, or for those in power with society that want to reshape man. And the idea is that what creates satisfaction and fulfillment in humanity is therefore malleable. It's flexible. You can change it. You can make it whatever you want, completely disconnected from God. For the secular humanist psychologist, the mind isn't a Xerox machine, which has been engineered and programmed with a specific purpose and with specific maintenance needs. It's Play-Doh, and it can be morphed into any purpose and succeed for whatever purpose it was molded. You could do a whole another sermon on this about what I'm about to say, but the whole creation of the modern public edu- education system was predicated from day one on this plan to remake humanity by remolding the mind to serve the aims of a humanist world with a state as God. 
It's based upon this false notion that the human mind is Plato, which can be fashioned to thrive with man's autonomous designs. But when you really get down to it, the myth of the Plato mind is really about rebellious man again trying to take the role of God and remaking himself into his own sinful image apart from God. And you hear this perspective advocating for the Plato human psyche from many of the ancient Greek philosophers throughout history. It was repackaged over time through quasi-Christian thinkers like Aquinas, and then again by Enlightenment philosophers, even those who claim to be Christian philosophers like John Locke, um, who set aside the law word of God in their analysis of the world. They, they claim the mind was like a blank slate. Many of you probably heard that before, that the mind is a blank slate, and they infused this blank slate theology into, into psychology. And the idea is that the human mind is simply a product of your experiences. But when engaging in psychoanalysis with this blank slate Plato mind perspective, the question posed by the counselors in these sessions aren't, you know, how has God created you to function? Uh, What does God require of you in his law? Or how do you fit into what God is doing and who he's made you to be and what he's doing? How do you fit into that? Uh, The questions, to the contrary, are about um, empowering autonomous man to achieve man's autonomous goals towards man's autonomous purpose, to shape the mind in whatever best enables the autonomous man. The questions are totally disconnected from what God wants and what God did and what his purpose is. They ask, <clears throat> you know, what's keeping you from being happy? That's, let's just start there. What, what's keeping you from being happy? What's keeping you from what you want in life and, and what will help you find fulfillment? Some of you may be thinking, you know, I've not bought into this, uh, but just keep in mind that any time that you are pursuing any course that's all about you and it's bringing glory to yourself and you're seeking your own agenda and you're not seeking God's agenda, you're displaying that you've bought into this idea that you can mold yourself into whatever you want to be autonomously from God. So it's the same sort of lie that you're buying into. It's not going to lead to the health of your mind because that isn't the way the mind was designed to work uh, because it isn't the purpose for which you were created for. And it doesn't lead to long-term fulfillment or satisfaction. It's like trying to use a toaster as a toothbrush. Uh, You'll get electrocuted and your teeth won't look any better. So um, Rush Juni also lays out a second prevalent myth about the nature of man. And this myth is not only limited to secular psychology, sadly, but has also crept into Christian counseling as well. Rush Juni puts it like this, and I'm going to quote. A central error of humanism and modernism has been its belief in the natural goodness of man. By its failure to take into account the fact of the fall, humanism has been unable to cope effectively with the problem of sin. It has consistently added to man's predicament by ascribing evil to the environment rather than to the heart of man, and it has been unable to penetrate man's psychology because of its willful blindness. On the other hand, too often, and this is where he's getting to this myth, too often Christian orthodoxy has erred by so overstressing man's depravity as to virtually assure the natural depravity of man. And so this is getting to the second myth that we're going to point out today with, with humanist psychology that also creeps into the Christian world. So yes, we do, make no mistake, live in the reality of the fall. I think we all know that pretty well. Uh, we're not in, the, in glory, right? <laughs> I think that's pretty clear. The world um, does, though, try to ignore these facts. And so rather than addressing sin, all turmoil that people experience is almost all of it is going to be pushed off to these external factors. And it's going to be very rare that they're going to deal with the internal sin of the, of the person who's in anguish. Now, of course, there are true victims who, through no, no faults of their own, have been victimized and experienced those kinds of uh, trauma and turmoil. And that's not what I'm talking about here. But just in general, the, the approach that uh, secular humanists or um, humanist psychology takes is to externalize all of that anguish that you're feeling to take the focus off of what's going inside in you and what your responsibilities are. 
So for example, just like thought out there in, in, in the culture, high crime areas are frequently linked to poverty. You'll hear that all the time. It's a high crime area. Oh, poverty. That's the cause, um, rather than to sin. Or there's little to no discussion of sin. You know, poverty may indeed be linked to that. I'm sure it is. But again, no, no discussion of what's inward. And poverty, um, when, if you do get to, well, what, why are people poor? Well, that can only be attributed to factors like racism and past abuse or systemic injustice or matters of personal sin. Of course, all those things are also true. And we know that those things are true. Um, but um, there is a lack of responsibility uh, focused on, on what's going on with the actual person who's in that, and that's either minimized or ignored. And so that said, so all that said, we at times as Christians can go too far in our emphasis of the fall. So to the point where we believe the myth that sees man only as a product of the fall, and, um, and, and it doesn't take into account either the image of God that we are originally created with, and that is permanent in us, or the redemption of Christ into a state of grace that we've been blessed with. And I call this one the Eeyore myth. Sort of like, oh, you know, we're depraved, you know, we can't get past this, we're sort of just stuck in this. That's not what God has called us to. In this myth, there is so much emphasis on the depravity of man and the fall of man, that the depravity of man is made out to be an absolute or an ontological reality, where we are still considered to be in a fallen and depraved state in our very essence even after redemption. So we have to watch out for that. Rush Juni says, quote, those who see sin as a perpetually powerful and inescapable factor, even in the redeemed man, are thus guilty of misunderstanding scripture. While man does not overcome sin entirely in this life, man's growth and sanctification means the steady decline and mortification of sin within him. Just as man's restoration to physical health means the decline of sickness or disease in his body, so man's regeneration and sanctification in Christ means the progressive decline of sin in his heart. So much to the contrary, the depravity of man did not change our essence as image bearers of God, but warped and twisted that image as a historical reality, not as a permanent reality, at least for Christians. What is permanent in man, what is the essence of man, is how he has been created in the image of God. And in order to understand the psychology of man, we must seek what man was originally created to be and who we are restored to be in Christ. Otherwise, we'll miss or deny the true essence of man. Ultimately, the problem that true, uh, truly Christian psychology should be trying to fix is a moral problem. There has been a revolt against the maturity that God has called man to embrace, and there has been a revolt against God which causes man to stray from what God requires of him. So to sum up the two prevalent myths, we have the myth of the Plato mind, which denies or ignores how God has, has designed the mind to work. And then we have the Eeyore myth, which places too much emphasis on the fall so as to confuse our depravity as something that is permanent and an ontological reality in man rather than a temporary state which is being progressively eradicated as we as Christians are being sanctified. So having explored and started to deconstruct these common myths that we've seen, let us now explore the components of the nature of man as we seek to reconstruct our understanding of the mind along a scriptural basis. So Rush Juni actually in his book gives 11 components of the nature of man that need to be understood in order to correctly analyze the mind of man, but not to worry, I've condensed them to a very manageable seven. The, the first thing to know about the nature of man is that man was created by the immediate and direct work of God on the sixth day of creation. So if you want to understand the mind of man, 
again, these are seven things. This, this one is crucial. You've got to know that it's important to remember that man was created directly and immediately by God. We are not evolved from animals over hundreds of millions of years. This is very important to know. Um, we have a documented record of all of the history of mankind. Uh, man is not an evolved primate emerging out of a chaotic order of natural selection over millions of years. Let me, let me say this very clearly. We don't need to study the characteristics of lobster hierarchies hundreds of millions of years ago to understand the mind of man today. This may sound ridiculous, because it is, but the current New York Times bestseller, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson, a clinical psychologist, spends half the book, and I had to read it for, this prep, for prep for this. He's talking about lobsters and um, <laughs> lobsters and other evolutionary studies along those lines to arrive at all his conclusions about what constitutes a meaningful life. What in the world are you going to look at a, a lobster for to understand how you should live, right? So the culture, though, is desperate. you, you got to remember, back to those statistics at the beginning. Look how bad things are out there. People are grasping for anything. Answers, right? And we have the answers. From, from a big picture, we have the answers. But sadly, be, we're, not ans- we're not offering them up, what, what we have. The principles are there in Scripture. So let's work on this a little more. Peterson is, is really hitting a nerve in the culture because, um, again, they're looking for this answer. They, they recognize something is very wrong with the mind of modern man. Man, so what you're seeing now with, with the insanity that's going out there in the culture, man has rejected God, and man is reaping the bad fruit of this, which is the degradation of the mind, and, and now they're grasping at anything. So recognize, when you see all the loony stuff that's going out there, know that it's just a fruit of, the, of, of man rejecting God as Lord over his life and Lord over his mind. This is what happens. And this is what Romans 1 talks about, what will happen. Um, secondly, so, so that's the first part. Man was, was not evolved. Man was created directly and immediately by God. Secondly, not only has man been directly created by God, but man's psychology is not in a constant state of evolution and change or in a continual process of recreating or redefining himself. So let me ask you a question. How many of you have heard somebody give counsel to somebody say, you just need to take some time to go find yourself? Or somebody telling you, I just need to take some time to go find myself, f- figure out who I am, right? Um, so that's a very common sort of phrase that you'll hear. And this kind of psychological pseudo-babble, which is what it is, it passes for actual wise counsel these days. And what it presumes is that the psyche of man has not already been defined by the creator, that one's true self needs to somehow emerge from some kind of state of inhibition, when the reality is this person usually is running from responsibility, running from maturity that God has called them to. As Rush Juni states, quote, man's nature is neither fixed by an evolutionary past nor an open question to be, ter- to be determined by man. It is a given fact from God. Okay, thirdly, and this is an interesting one, man was created as a mature being, not a child. So this being the case, we cannot make child psychology the core focus of a proper understanding of the nature of man. This is not to say that external factors such as a childhood trauma um, and so forth are not important aspects of analyzing our current mental state, but we do need to understand very clearly that a person's sin is not mainly a function of reverting, reverting back to a primitive past, um, like with, with uh, you know, as a monkey like used to. It's, it's, it's not a reversion to a so-called inner child state that, um, that uh, 
psychologists like to talk about. No, God created the first man, Adam, with an already mature psyche. Adam did not have the mind of a toddler. His sin was an intentional, this is what you need to get, Adam's sin was an intentional revolt against the maturity that God called him to. It was an intentional revolt against God. Humans will do anything we can to attempt to make the sin that we engage in someone else's fault. All right? And we want to push the responsibility for that sin to some external factor. Adam said, the woman you gave me handed me the fruit, God. Right? The external, away from me. I want it away from me. Nothing much has changed. Now, as a society, and sadly, even within the church, we have institutionalized and mass-engineered the practice of pushing all responsibility for sin off to external factors. My sin isn't my fault. It's my wife's fault, my husband's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my boss's fault. It's God's fault. It's how I was evolved to be. It's my environment. It's my upbringing. Someone did me wrong. Someone provoked me. And then the counselors of our day just perpetuate this. It's not always explicit. It's almost never explicit how they perpetuate this. It's often very subtle. But in terms of the focus of the questions that they're going to be asking someone who is in psychological anguish, the questions are asked about, are not anything um, about, you know, this person's present calling as a human being made in the image of God to pursue the dominion mandate, like what he's created to be, what he needs to be doing, where he is at in life in comparison to that. And this approach, it just multiplies excuses that people make. So the sad part is not only is this self-justification for sin not going to fly with God, failing to take responsibility and confess our sins, failure to, to call our sins what they are and to not make excuses for them just leads to our continued slavery to sin and our inability to gain victory over uh, our minds. It robs us of the opportunity to grow and heal and experience the real renewal of our minds spoken of in Romans 12. Rather than counseling people to find ways to justify their sin and push the responsibility for it off to external factors, we must remind each individual who they were created to be in Adam before the fall and who they are restored to be in Christ. Okay? Fourthly, and this, this one is maybe one of the most important ones, the meaning of man's life transcends man himself. Let me say it again. The meaning of man's life transcends man himself. So the idea is that man can never be understood only in terms of himself, but only in reference to the sovereign purpose of God. A humanist psychology robs man of the meaning of his existence by making it all about him. How often do you hear about some famous actor or some famous movie star or a singer committing suicide, checking into rehab, addicted to drugs, despite having just reached all the goals that they were aiming for, having reached everything, fame and money? How often do you hear about the rich and the famous developing hardcore drug addictions in, in order just to feel that they can cope with everyday life? They've achieved their autonomous purpose in life, but it ends up just disappointing them. It's the loneliest place that you'll get to when you've hit the summit, but it's just disappointed you. They've been trying to brush their teeth with a toaster. They've been electrocuted. I'm not going to go back to this bad joke. Okay. (laughs) The biggest, the biggest, but the biggest temptation for people, especially young people, is to think, okay, this is my world and everyone else is just living in it. And it's not just kids. Adults struggle with this too, kids. Um, Other people exist to do things for me, uh, to provide fulfillment to me, to make much of me. And then those people act and live and make decisions according to that whole mindset. And it's, it's a lie. Um, and it's a sneaky one because the mindset that I just described, you can put a Christian t-shirt on that mindset and you can sort of sneak by in Christian community 
for a while at least, and, and I promise you though, one day it will blow up in your face. It's a danger we all need to be aware of, young folks, parents, and elders too. This is probably the number one obstacle to us renewing our minds. All right, fifth, man was created in the image of God. Man was created to be good, holy, and righteous. Man was to display and manifest the magnificence of God's goodness throughout the whole earth. This is man's normative state. This is what we need to understand. When God created Adam in the garden, this was not some weird state of him being good and innocent and righteous and holy. This is who man was created to be. We right now are in the weird state where we're having struggle against our sin and against our flesh. This is not the normative state. And imagine trying to counsel somebody without that. I mean, that's just the truth without, without knowing that, without making that clear to that person. The departure from this ideal of what God created in the garden is what Rush Juni calls a deformation of man's true nature, a cancer and a sickness unto death. So when man falls away and sins, this cannot be just attributed to like a midlife crisis or, you know, he's sowing his wild oats. Uh, It's a normal experimentation that teenagers do, or uh, it's a period of finding oneself. All of these sort of sinful states are designed to be, uh, it's, it's, it's as if those sort of sinful states were designed to be part of man's normative experience. And you even hear these kinds of rationalizations made in Christian circles. Do you see how subtle that is? Developing within us an expectation of sin for ourselves and for those around us and a rationalization when it occurs in our lives. We need to be reinforcing the image of God that we were uh, created with both to ourselves and to our Christian community and then to the world. Okay, sixth, basic to man's nature uh, Genesis 1 and 2, is his calling to take dominion and subdue the earth. Okay, we've, we've gone over that a lot at Cross and Crown Church. But Rush Juni points out that this calling to uh, f- um, take dominion and, sub- and subdue the earth is the reason that man was created a mature being, ready to take dominion with all the tools at his disposal. And it's only being increased with the addition of his helpmeet Eve. The urge to take dominion is in the lifeblood of humanity. Uh, Psalm 8, 6. Thou madest him... To what? To have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. That's why we were created, to do that. And we can't begin to understand. Again, imagine trying to counsel somebody without which is ignoring these central truths of what the mind is. We can't begin to understand the nature and the psyche of man apart from understanding this urge to take dominion, which has been pre-programmed into man. All right, seventh, finally. And this is highly relevant to our society today, which doesn't know the difference between a man and a woman. Sadly, uh, God clearly lays out God's plan for mankind in that God created them male and female and created them to procreate, produce, multiply, and fill the earth. They are also clearly created in a fashion whereby they are, there are physical, biological, and psychological differences which cause men and women to complement each other. Humanists deny or diminish these differences in men and women, and in so doing, they diminish and inhibit the maturity that God has called both men and women to grow into. God also created men and women with an an inerrant orientation to fill the earth and multiply through childbearing. Of course, there are those who are unable to multiply biologically for various reasons, but they can still participate in this work through the discipleship of the unregenerate. But then humanism comes along, steps in, and presents a concept of the human person which carries no dominion mandate at all, let alone affirming the urge to procreate to this end. To the contrary, in the pursuit of one's self-actualization, there is often hostility to the notion of fertility. 
This mindset can be manifested in our culture of death with 60 million uh, murdered preborn infants in the last 50 years, and then the advancement within the culture of the normalization of homosexual relationships in government schools, Hollywood, business, and so on. Relationships that by their very nature can produce no offspring. Such a dynamic marks a nation in the throes of suicide. Psychological counseling which ignores or diminishes the dominion mandate in man will always fail to understand the mind of man. Taken together, much of what we have covered today only really scratches the surface of the topic again. As parents and as families, we must fight the battle of renewing our minds to conform to the truth of who we are, who God is, and what our purpose is. The battle must be fought on a minute-by-minute basis, hour-by-hour, believe me. Uh, I'm a fellow soldier in this. As, and as we engage the world and those in our sphere of influence, we must not be prone to arrogance in our interaction with the world or contempt as if those struggling with the deepest forms of psychological sin can maybe you know, be cured overnight in one conversation or you know, although God can do anything, he can, he can do that. But we should expect to be leavening truth into people's lives and exposing lies on a continual basis and, and just praying that the Spirit would wake their hearts to, to accept the truth and to free them of the fertility and the depravity of their minds that they've embraced, uh, as we all have been uh, blessed with, with God doing that for us. So what we do know is that we live in a society and a culture that has utterly failed to stem the tide of mental illness. To the contrary, the problem only grows larger. So there's a big opportunity. And this is after, again, countless years, over 100 years now, of the domination of the psychological departments by the humanists. We do know that from a big picture perspective, we as Christians have the message of reconciliation that provides the only a lasting renewal to minds um, that people are all starving for. And it's no accident um, this starving is, is there. It's no accident that Jordan Peterson became an overnight sensation with millions of followers and offers of interviews and speaking engagements all around the world as a clinical psychologist. People are hungry out there. But... It's just more evidence, as, as Rush Juni says, although man may fail to meet his responsibilities, he can never escape them. And I know just personally this topic is difficult um, as we come across so many distressing situations in our lives, some just the, the run-of-the-mill everyday situations, and then there you know, can be big, terrible, uh, stressful situations that, that make war on our, on our psyche and in our mind. You know, some days it just seems it'll never end. And the irony of this was not lost on me as I was traveling home for 16 hours in a padded uh, minivan with kids screaming and crying as, as I was writing a sermon on the mind, okay? I don't, I don't suggest anyone try that. But what we can know for certain, and you can take this to the bank, that as Christ is reconciling all things to himself, we can trust that he is, in fact, renewing our minds, Though we can't always tell it, but he is doing that, and that he will complete the good work that he began in us. So let's pray. Father, we know that there have been times in our lives where we have all sought to revolt against you and against the maturity that you have called us to. Forgive us for this, Father, and convict us of areas of continuing sin in this regard. Thank you for the work of your Son. Thank you for the renewal of our minds, that we are new creations. Thank you. And thank you for the continued sanctification and the renewal of our minds that you work in us. May we be a light to the world, and we thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen.